Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. I want to talk today, you know, there's uh, certain, you know, almost, you know, you could call them almost epidemics in our cult, modern culture today. Uh, stress and anxiety. Uh, and then, of course, there's lots of social media use. And then there's anxiety and there's anxiety that comes from that. And there's anxiety about our social media use. And, uh, and so there's these things that our culture is talking lots about these days. And the things that people are wrestling with. We're seeing, you know, huge proportions of young people and all ages of people struggling with anxiety, struggling with how to deal the technological world that we're in. And the question I have is, does the Bible speak to any of these issues? Well, and the, the first, you know, answer on the surface level is, well, I mean, certainly there is no verse in here that t- talks to us about a social media plan. That's true. I, I can't point you to a book of the Bible and say, turn to Isaiah 34 and let's read about healthy Facebook usage, right? Uh, and yet the amazing thing about the Bible is that it is absolutely inspired by God and therefore timeless for every culture, you know, from the rainforest to, you know, modern society from ancient times to modern times, it's timeless. And it, so it doesn't name every single specific thing that we might talk about and discuss uh, in our day and age today. And yet it speaks to the basic issues of how did God make us and why and what are the purposes. And if we look deeply into those things in, this, in the scriptures, we're actually going to find that it actually does have answers for us. Incredibly relevant answers, even for our modern day and age and things like anxiety and stress and social media. And so I want to actually start this message in the Ten Commandments. And, uh, you know, 3,500 years ago, somewhere around there, but well over 3,000 years ago, God gave Moses this incredible, revolutionary, epic, simple set of Ten Commandments. And he gave him a bunch of other things too in the Old Testament. But the, the set that kind of stands above them all and that uh, covers them all is this epic list of ten. And in ten short, simple commands, he basically covers every possible wicked thing a human being can do. And I want to look at all of them. We're actually going to focus on the 10th commandment today, but we're going to start with commands 7 through 9, because I have to set this up just a little bit. And so if we look at commands 7 through 9 in in Deuteronomy chapter 5, they're listed there and also in Exodus 20, we find these words, starting in verse 18, and you shall not commit adultery. That's law number 7. And law number 8 is, and you shall not steal And law number nine is, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. In other words, you shall not lie. And you know, if we also included law number six, I just didn't have room for some of the things I wanted to do. If we also included law number six, which is just before this, we would say, we would see the command, you shall not murder. Now, in those four laws, six through nine, literally, like I just said before, you basically cover off almost every bad thing a human being could possibly do you know, under these general headings. There's lots of different specific ways each of these things can work themselves out. But the simplicity and beauty of these laws for the human race is absolutely incredible. You know, we had our staff set free this last week and Stefan said something, you know, pertaining to this. He said, if we could just get one of these things right, what a different society we would live in. And I want you to think about that for just a moment. I want to take a couple minutes here at the beginning before we get to the 10th commandment because it's going to tie into this very much. But I want you to think of the beauty of these laws. If we could just get one of these right in our nation or in the world, we actually wouldn't even be able to recognize how the the world we would be living in, it would be that amazing. Okay? For example, let's take do not steal. It's actually pretty simple. How many of you are planning to steal something this next week? By the way, just... I mean, it's pretty simple. I'm not planning to steal anything this next week. But do you know, and so you, we, we take some of these commandments for granted, but do you know how radically your life, my life, this country and our world would be changed if we could just get 7 billion people on the planet? Just to agree on that one. Like, forget about the other ones. We're, we're messing up all of them. If we could just get this one right, do you know how much life on the planet would be different? We would hardly recognize it. Do you know that? 
I, I uh, was reading some articles this week, just trying to get a, a grasp on the cost to humanity of our breaking of some of these commands. And I was looking at stealing in particular. And uh, I read some studies where they just took, I mean, you got to think in the, over the whole of, of the earth, of planet earth, there are literally tens of thousands of different businesses and companies and that sort of thing. But, and I looked at a study, so nobody could ever survey all of them and get a handle on this. But I, I saw a, a rigorous study that was done just on one small kind of business, the retail business, and it did a study of the 920 biggest retail companies in the world, and they just wanted to see how much do these companies have to spend every year in trying to prevent people from stealing. So remember, the, the numbers I'm about to give you are not for all the businesses in the world. This is just from one tiny sliver of businesses in the world. But they found just in these 920 companies, they found these 920 companies spend every year over $25 billion just trying to stop people from stealing from them, okay? So that's $25 billion just in this one little sliver of, of companies on being spent on security systems and security guards and bars in the windows and, and all these kinds of things trying to keep people from stealing. Now, that's just one. Now, imagine if we were to look at all the different kinds of companies and businesses out there uh, and all the measures that are having to be, all the money that is being spent every year just trying to keep people from stealing, you're talking about literally untold billions and billions of dollars. And being spent on something that doesn't make the product better, that doesn't make it cheaper, that makes everything more expensive, and makes all of us go more into debt. Imagine where that money could be spent if you could just trust that people wouldn't steal. It'd be amazing. And that's just the money they're spending to try and keep people from stealing. Uh, what about all the money they lose when they fail, which is a lot? And uh, just, again, in that one kind of store, if you look just in the United States, now we're not even looking at the whole world. It's, again, it's hard to get a grasp on these numbers. But in the United States alone, almost $50 billion is lost every year just in that one kind of business, retail business. Almost $50 billion is lost every year just from people walking into stores and walking out with things that they didn't pay for. Is that just staggering? Do you realize how much more you and I pay for all of our goods and services because of this human desire to steal. Again, we're talking about, if we, would, if we would extrapolate this to all businesses, the amount spent on stopping and the amount spent on losing from stealing, it would literally be in the hundreds of billions of dollars. And we haven't even talked about the government. Okay? <laughs> I kind of came out wrong. I, but you know, I'm going to leave you to interpret that as you want. But I mean, think about how much the government spends because they can't trust us. Can you imagine if they could just trust that we would all send our taxes in and be honest about it? The amount of jobs that would be lost. And you say, see, that's why I do it. I want to keep people employed. We need auditors. We need... No, but those people could all be gainfully employed in doing something that's actually productive to the country that have to be employed trying to ferret out cheaters and liars and stealers. I mean, the cost to our personal lives and to our nation and to our world, the amount of money that could be spent on healthcare and education and debt reduction and making things more cost-effective and cheaper and better, the amount of money you wouldn't even recognize the world we live in today if, as a human race, we could just agree on one of these laws and just say, and thou shalt not steal, could we just all agree not to steal? Yes. Never mention, <laughs> thank you, yes. Maybe we could all agree to do that. Could we agree as a church? <laughs> Boy, I'd hate to see the stats on Christians and how we participate in this. Hopefully it's better than the rest of the world. I think we would find that, but I don't have stats on that. But imagine, I mean, and when we looked at the other ones, I mean, the adultery one and, you know, lust and all the stuff that goes with that. Wow. Can you imagine the devastation that would be saved in this world and the families kept together and the porn industry out of business and all this stuff if we could get that one right? But if we, any one of these, these commands are so simple, so beautiful, literally these commandments, you know, I, I hear people talking bad about God's laws sometimes. And I just think, I think the same way as David. And David said, your laws are like honey. God's laws are a gift. It's destructive when we disobey them, okay? 
So in laws six through nine, you know, you have these amazing four simple commands. But where I want to spend the rest of our time today is I actually want to spend our time on commandment number 10. And I've left it off there because I think it's often a forgotten one. Usually when we think of the 10 commands, we think about the murder, the stealing, the adultery. I think anyway, that's, those are probably the ones that we more think of as the big ones. I think number 10 is one, at least I look at my own personal life in, and into our preaching at this church and the preaching here at other churches. It's maybe not one we talk about as much or it isn't as noticed as the other ones. And so I want to bring that one out here and I want to show you, well, let's just look at it first, right? So what is commandment number 10? I don't know. Some of you might know it off by heart. Some of you might have looked it up on your phones already while I was talking. But commandment number 10 says this, verse 21, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field or his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when we look at number 10, you know, after the epic kind of commands six through nine. I think for some of us, sometimes we almost think like number 10 is maybe a little bit of a letdown. Like is that one, that one can't be as serious as the other ones, right? I mean, sure. If it's in the 10 commandments, it's bad. But if I have a, if I have a choice between do not murder and do not covet, I think I'm going with do not covet. By the way, I just have to, on this one, I just have to, proper Christian thinking is so important to me. One of the Christianese statements that I've always just had a little bit of a problem with, and I know people are so well-meaning when they say it, and I know the truth that's behind it, so it's not bad if you're one of those people that says this sometimes, but sometimes as Christians, we often say, all sin is equal to God. Okay, let me just say this. All sin is bad. All sin is not equal to God. If all sin was equal to God, why did he give different punishments for the sins in the Old Testament? The fact of the matter is, some sin is more destructive than others. Can we just admit what's actually obvious to us all intuitively? If you have a choice on the way home today, if someone held a gun to your head and said, you have to sin today and you get to choose, are you going to speed on the way home from church or are you going to murder someone? Okay. Which one should you pick? (laughs) Now it's alarming to me. How many of you just looked at me with a blank stare? That actually scares me. (laughs) Let me just tell you, and it's not just me. God agrees murders worse. That's why in the Old Testament, murder had a stiffer penalty than stealing somebody's sheep. Okay? It's all sin is bad and all sin falls short of the glory of God. That's true. But it is definitely worse to commit adultery, okay, in terms of the damage it does than it is to have a lustful thought. Both are bad and one leads to another, but certainly to act out on sinful thoughts is worse than to have the sinful thought. Is that, does that make sense? And so in that sense, when we look at coveting, our intuition is correct at one level. Yes, uh, coveting is bad. It just doesn't, but because it's an inside one, it feels like maybe it's, it's maybe less bad than some of the other ones where you're kind of acting out. But here's why, and so you might wonder like, why is this one in there? I mean, why is the coveting in there? Let's, you know, why not just keep it super simple or was God going for an even 10, right? But actually, I think, I mean, I know because it's inspired and it was God, he obviously knows what he's doing. One of the things I think that is so powerful about the fact that God calls out coveting specifically is if you think about it, coveting is at the root of the previous four in almost all cases. Isn't that true? I mean, uh, if you go back, if... If you, if, uh, Jamie, if you could go back just uh, one again. I just want to go back to that. Uh, um, I mean, adultery. Where does adultery come from? You don't commit adultery unless you first covet somebody else's wife. Isn't that true? If you don't desire this other person, you're not going to commit adultery. Where does stealing come from? I don't know of anyone who's ever stolen something they didn't want. Now, maybe it's happened somewhere. <laughs> but you don't go into a store and steal something you don't want. Stealing starts with a desire. I desire something I don't have, so I steal it. Okay? And much lying and murder. Now, I'm not going to say coveting is at the root of every single sin. I think that goes too far. But I think it's safe to say when you meditate on the Ten Commandments, coveting is at the root of many, many of our problems and sins. Okay? Many of our sins start with desiring something that isn't ours in an unhealthy way. I mean, it's not that all desire is automatically wrong. You know, you have an old vehicle and you need a new one. It's not bad 
to want something that you can save up for and buy, but to want something that's yours in an unhealthy, ungrateful way is a root cause of much, much sin, which is why in the New Testament, and I don't have time today to, to give you a full survey of the New Testament, but if you pay attention in the New Testament, coveting actually comes up quite a bit. And it's in a number of the different uh, epistles that Paul writes uh, where he lists it with some of the major sins where people are excluded from the kingdom of God. In several different places, he lists coveting in there. I just want to show you one place in the New Testament passage, and then, and then uh, we're going to go off of that. But let's look at James chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. And James asks this question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? That's a good question, right? So what causes uh, disunity among Christians? What causes, uh, you know, this fighting and, and stress and disunity and fractures of relationships? Well, he goes on to explain it. He says this, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, right? So you murder. There he ties coveting to murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So James says right here at the root of lots of our sin issues, not every single issue, but lots of our sin comes from these passions and desires within us, this coveting, desiring what we do not have, that then drives us to act out in angry or dishonest or lying ways. Now, before we get into some of the roots of this and how we deal with it, I just want to talk a little bit about what are some of the different things that people can covet after. This isn't an exhausted list, an exhaustive list. Um, but this is, I just want to give you a short list just to help you see that coveting isn't just money and possessions, although it Obviously, I think we can start with that. So what are some of the things people covet after? Well, like I just said, money and possessions would probably be the obvious one we normally think of when we think of coveting, okay? So this idea of wanting things, wanting uh, stuff. Now, I think a lot of times uh, where we get it wrong as Christians is a lot of us, we don't think of ourselves as coveting because many of us are coveting, I don't think, is conscious, in the sense that I don't think many of us wake up in the morning and think to ourselves, my neighbor's house, I really want that house. I want to take it from them. <laughs> okay? And if you are at that place, please see one of our pastors and a trained counselor this week, okay? You're in deep. Uh, but that's not, I don't think most of us consciously think of it that way. But I actually think most of us are touched at some level, at least at some points in our lives, by coveting after money and possessions, but it comes at more a subconscious level, where we are subconsciously, we maybe don't think of someone specifically that we'd like to take that vehicle from them or take that whatever from them, but we're driven to overspend and take on stressful amounts of debt and all that kind of stuff, not because of one particular person we're trying to take something from them, but we're trying to keep up with everybody else around us. That's actually a form of coveting too. I remember uh, uh, you know, a story I've told before, but Ladon and I, our first year of marriage, we were in Korea, and in Seoul, Korea, you've got millions and millions of people living in a cramped, you know, cramped tight quarters. So space, you know, one of the things you don't realize until you leave Canada, one of the things we take for granted here in Canada is space. You know, I, I can even look at the way our auditorium fills up, and if you're the first one to sit down in a row, and someone sits down two or three seats away from you, it's almost like, whoa, that's a little bit intimate right? Like, let's wait till it's a little fuller before we sit that close, right? Like, we're just used to space, okay? In, in Asia, you don't have that. You know, I, I mean, you know how much we love space when the biggest thing I hear about Costco always is, why is it so busy all the time? Isn't that true? Every time someone goes to Costco, it's like, it doesn't matter when you go there, it's always busy. And then, and it doesn't matter who goes there, we're always annoyed, right? It's just like, it's too busy, too many people. That's a Canadian thing, okay? That's a North American thing, okay? When you go to Asia, nobody has space, okay? You're never given personal space. There are constantly people all around you, and if you're tall enough, in your armpits. That happened to me often. <laughs> Every subway ride, it's like, oh, great, one, two. <laughs> Gotta always be careful to wear your deodorant there when I had to anyway, but... 
So when we were in Korea, we lived in a tiny little apartment because everybody, even if you have a lot of money in Korea, you might have nice things in your tiny apartment, but you won't have a large amount of space. So we lived in a tiny, tiny little place in Korea. So we had, uh, we had a bedroom, which could also double as a, as a living room, I guess, because the couch was there right next to the bed. And then we had an entryway, and in that entryway was also a sink and, uh, you know, kind of your countertop space and a sort of cook, cooking uh, top thing. <laughs> it wasn't really a stove. I don't know what you... I don't know. Whatever. Um, and then we had a bathroom, and then we had another room with, with a little tiny table and a place where we could hang up our clothes. Like, it was just tiny. But when you're in Korea, everything's tiny. You just, oh, it's great. It's awesome. Okay. So then after a year out there, we moved back here and we moved into some apartments on the, on the south end of town here. And I think we had, I think if I remember correctly, it was about 700 square feet in this apartment. And we felt like 700 square feet is a mansion. Like we are, ho. Oh, I mean, it's all, what are we going to do with all this space? We can have three or four people over at a time and not be sitting on each other's laps. This is amazing. Okay. And so we move into this place and it literally felt big to us at first. But you know, something interesting happened. After a couple of months of living here, our apartment physically shrank. <laughs> I don't know how it did that. When we moved in, it felt big. But after a couple of months, it felt small. And we hadn't added any kids yet at that point. So you ask yourself the question, how did that apartment shrink physically in size? Well, it didn't shrink physically in size. It shrank in how we felt about it. Now, why did it shrink in how we felt about it? Because everywhere we went was much bigger than that one. And so we never got up in the morning one morning and thought to ourselves, you know, uh, you know what? This is crazy small and everybody else is big. We have to get bigger. You just kind of, it's the subconscious. Our brains are actually made that way because we're so relational. You just have to watch it on the negative side for what it can do. And by the way, it's not bad. We live in a much bigger place now. We have four kids. We want more space, and we enjoy more space, and we can afford more space. So it's not that it's bad to have a bigger house. I'm not saying it's bad to buy things or to have nice things. None of that is bad. All I'm saying is you can see how there can be this subconscious push that actually what you think you need might not actually be what you need. It might be you just keeping up with the tide of everything that goes on around you. Isn't that true? Now, when that, again, so is it bad if you can afford it to buy a house? No, obviously not. I own a, we own a house. We bought a house, right? Is it bad to have a nice vehicle? No, if you can afford it. Brilliant. That's awesome. Super good. But where you can see where it turns into covetousness in our, uh, in our culture is literally you see it, and it's with Christians too. You would not believe when I talk to my accountant friends, and they don't tell me details of who and what, but the carnage in personal finances, even with among Christians, the carnage of debt and stress and the marriages that are, that are under stress because of financial stuff. And some of you who do well with your money uh, normally, it, it doesn't feel to you maybe like it's that bad. You should see what it's like. And for a lot of our young people growing up now too, the over massive amounts of debt as they try to keep up with what they think they all need. And you know what that is? That is covetousness. That's covetousness, money and possessions. But you know, there's more than just money and possessions. You know, another thing that we can covet in our culture, and actually I think in all cultures, it just dif differs as to what that image might be. But another thing that people covet after is a certain kind of body image. Isn't that true? So every time you go to the grocery store, every time you go to the cashier, right? You got racks and racks of magazines that are put there with pictures on the cover, all to convince you of how ugly you and I are. <laughs> or many of us are. <laughs> That's what they're there to do, right? And this is what a man should look like, and this is what a woman should look like. And if you don't, then you're somehow less than. But if you buy these certain products and take this certain diet and do this certain exercise plan, then you too can look like this. Now, again... Is it wrong to want to exercise and be healthy and eat healthy? No. Uh, is it wrong to, be, uh, to want to make yourself presentable and attractive? No, that's not bad either. I mean, I didn't put on my worst clothes to come here and preach this morning, okay? Uh, you know, my favorite pair of jeans. 
could not be worn on this stage. They are worn and soft and comfortable. And yesterday, my son Charlie told me, Dad, I can see your underwear when you bend over. And I'm like, oh. So I, I didn't wear those here. So it's not bad to make yourself, to want to make yourself somewhat attractive or as attractive as you can be. That's not, none of that is bad. It's not bad to exercise. But we have this culture, we have, literally have millions of people who cannot be content with the body God's given them and they're trying to be someone that God didn't make them to be. And they've got all this stress on them and all these feelings of lack of contentment and gratitude. And you know what that is? That is a form of covetousness. Wanting something that isn't yours. Unable to be content with what you have. Now Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And I'm going to show, read this whole passage to you, but I just, I'm going to leave only one line up there for just a few minutes. I want us just to focus on this one line. Verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Paul says godliness with contentment. Contentment is the opposite of covetousness. Contentment is I'm satisfied with what I have. Covetousness is I need more, 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 more. It needs to be better, needs to be bigger, needs to be more, 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 and is never satisfied. Contentment is I'm actually satisfied with what I have. I'm satisfied with how I look. I'm satisfied with what God has given me. And Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain. It's like this tremendous treasure. Can you imagine how amazing your life would be if you could get up every morning and actually just be content, content with who you are, content with what you look like, content with what you live in, and you could just be grateful. Paul says, oh man, that's the good life. The good life isn't having a bunch of stuff and never being grateful for it anyway. The good life is, even if you have very little stuff, to be grateful no matter what. That is the good life. That's the great game. But it also brings up other things that people struggle with covetousness. Here's another form of covetousness, wanting somebody else's spouse or marriage or family or life. It's amazing how many people, right? How many single people wish they were married and how too often some married people wish they were single. That's a form of covetousness. And I'm not just talking about straight to adultery here when I talk about a spouse. I'm talking about, you know, people I prayed with over the years and how I see a common thing is for a person, uh, for people to look at somebody else's marriage and just think to themselves, I wish we had it easy like them. Lots of couples feel that. Lots of spouses feel that. I wish I had it easy like them. So let me just tell you something as a pastor who has talked and prayed with many people behind closed doors, okay? Very, I was going to say nobody. I'll just say nobody for effect. And then a little bit of hyperbole. Nobody has an easy marriage. Okay, miss some. But the fact of the matter is, when you put two sinful, selfish people <laughs> into one, for life till death do us part, that isn't even supposed to be easy. If it's easy, maybe your character isn't getting developed. Like, or maybe you're just an angel. <laughs> but you're going to have hard times sometimes. You're going to have to learn to communicate. You're going to have to learn to look the other way. You're going to have to learn to forgive and forgive and forgive. You're going to have to learn all these things. But you know, it's a form of covetousness when you keep looking, I want it easy. Guess what? Everybody's marriage looks easy in public. Very few of us have you know, knock down, drag them out fights in the lobby. We just don't do it. <laughs> so you're not seeing the real deal, right? But it's this covetousness of I want the easier life, I want the easier spouse, I want the easier this, or, I, or for the single people, I want to be married, which all of it is fine to want something, but at what point do we ever learn to just be content? Amen. Do you know how much stress would be saved for some of you? If you just settled in your heart, I said, till death do us part, it doesn't mean that you're not going to try and always make your marriage better and love better, but actually, this is the marriage I have, so this is what I'm going to be grateful for. And you know what? Some marriages are just always going to be better than other ones. It's just true. 
So just be content in the one you have and let God be glorified through the one you have. Which brings up another place where lack of contentment can come in and covetousness is this idea of always looking to some further stage in the future of my life when I will finally be happy. So for business people or career people, this can sometimes mean, you know, I will be happy finally when, I can't be content right now where my business is at, it's too stressful, too many things going on, but once my business gets to this, some point in the future, oh, then I'm going to be happy. Or for parents, oh, when I can get, just get the last one out of diapers, oh, hallelujah. <laughs> right? But let me tell you something. Here's the truth about contentment. If you're always waiting for some point in the future to be content, you will never get there. Contentment is all about the present. You can't wait for contentment to happen to you. If you don't learn to start reaching and striving for contentment now in the present, you'll never get to it at some point in the future. And let me tell you something else about the future. All of these wonderful stages you're waiting to get to all have their own challenges. Some of you break down weeping. No. They're going to get out of diapers and then they're going to do some things that are going to shock you. <laughs> I mean, I know I have high school parents sometimes in my office and they're like, and you go, whoa, whoa. wow, give me the diapers. <laughs> At least they won't do that. At least they won't be boyfriends with so-and-so, right? And your business. Oh, if I can just get it to this point. You know what? There's no amazing point where there's no problems. So Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment means I'm going to be present in my life now, and I'm going to enjoy the journey and look at all around me that I have to be thankful for now, which is what Paul says next. He says this in verse 7, Contentment is so powerful because it's not dependent on circumstances. He says this, verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world and cannot take anything out of the world. There goes entitlement. <laughs> right? Lots of people are stressed because they have this idea somehow that God owes them an easier life. And God, Jesus said, he'll be with you in troubles. And you can have joy in troubles, but he never said you would have an easy life. He said, in this world, you will have many troubles. So there goes the entitlement. And then verse 8. Now look at this. But if we have food and clothing. Wow. Because a lot of us would make that list a lot longer. Isn't it true? No, no. I'll be happy when. Da, 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 da. My kids are perfect. My income is at a certain level. But the house is paid off. Ha, ha, ha. When I get over this sickness. <laughs> and Paul says, no, 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 no. Actually, my list is two things. If I have food and clothing. With these, we'll be content. Wow, I look around here and everybody's clothed. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm assuming the vast majority of you have eaten sometime in the last 24 hours and will multiple times again today, which means actually, if we followed this, every single one of us could be content. Wow. I bet you there are probably a hundred things in our lives every day that we take for granted that we don't pay attention to. If we just did that, we'd be way more grateful. I mean, just the fact that I, I mean, I can walk. You know, there's people in our church, people here in this service right now who can't do that. That's something, I, that's a gift I have to be grateful for, isn't that? That's a pretty big deal. I bet you there's probably a hundred things in your life and my life every day that there's probably millions of people in the world who would give anything to have that blessing. I actually found a video yesterday, and I even got permission from the church to show it. So what I'm about to do is actually legal, which is wonderful in terms of showing a video. Um, love when that happens. Um, but anyway, it's from Forest Hill Church in North Carolina. They put together, some of you have seen it, no doubt, already. It's called Christmas Presents. It is a brilliant, funny two-minute video that just captures some of the basic things that we have to be thankful for every day that we often totally forget. Guys, if you could just run that, that'd be awesome. I'm alive! I'm alive! 
Paul is exactly getting at it, 1 Timothy 6. If I have food and clothing, I'm already going to be grateful. Do you know much how many sinful temptations in your life? We looked before at how coveting feeds in to so much of our other sins. Do you know how much temptation in your life you would short circuit if you would just notice every day, if you and I would just notice every day how blessed we are just to be able to get up in the morning? But godliness with contentment is great gain. Great gain. And then Paul goes on to say this, verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I want you to notice the pain and ruin language that Paul talks about covetousness. All of this desiring, desiring, desiring and never being satisfied ends up piercing us with pangs. Now, I think a lot of Christians have not taken this verse to heart because I think a lot of Christians have looked at this, you know, love of money verse and they've thought to themselves, well, I don't love money, obviously, because I don't have any. I think that's what a lot of Christians think, is that this verse is just for what they call rich people. Now, interesting, if you were to interview many millions of people around the earth about whether they think you are rich or not, many of us would be considered very wealthy by lots of people in the earth. But however, we go by our own cultural definitions of wealth and we go, well, I'm not rich. This, this verse is for rich people. But you know, the fact of the matter is, the love of money has nothing to do with whether you're rich or poor. There are rich people who love money and there are rich people that could care less about money. I know people who have lots of money who don't care hardly at all about money. They give it away by the gobs. They were just gifted by God to be good at making it and they do that for his glory. And there are poor people who love money and poor people who don't love money. Fact of the matter is, and some of my experiences here at the church is, sometimes the people who love money the most are actually who have the least of it. They have massive amounts of debt because they're driven by the love of money and possessions and so they continually overspend. So the love of money is something that's gonna heap stress and pain and pangs on your life. And too much debt might be, not always. There's, you know, there's different reasons why people go into debt. So I'm not saying if you're here today and you're struggling with debt, that's because you are covetous, but that can be, and in many cases in our culture, is a sign of the love of money. So to sum this up, and then I wanna look at a root. Covetousness is all about more. It's always more and it's never satisfied. More stuff, more attention, more success, more work, more busyness, more money. It's more, 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 never enough. Contentment is the opposite. Contentment knows how to say enough. Contentment, and it's not that you might be sitting there and going, well, content people will never change the world because they don't care to make things better. They don't care to grow things. Not true. Content people might very well love 
in their place of expertise and work to grow things and be successful and to work hard. But they also know how to put a boundary around it and say, enough. I'm also going to enjoy the journey. And I'm also going to enjoy being a human being. You know that you are starting to struggle with covetousness when you start living in the overs. Overworking, over busy, overspending, over committing. These are all possible signs of covetousness. I'm not saying everybody, and it's not about judging. It's not about defining what overspending or overworking is, because some people have capacity for more and some people have capacity for less. But when you get into the overs, I think it's important that we actually take a deep look inside and see what's driving me. Because covetousness comes with a world of pain and destruction. And now this brings me to a final point, which is one major driver. It's not the only one, there's many. But one big driver of discontent and covetousness in our culture that is unique to our modern culture and is in fact unique really to the last couple of decades, the last decade in particular, something that is new in all of human history, and that is social media. Now, let me just start this off by saying social media in and of itself is not bad. It's a tool. You can either use it for good or you can use it for bad. And we're never as a church going to set up rules. That's legalism. If it's not in the Bible then it, and you make a rule about it, then it's legalism. So nowhere in here does it say you can't ever go on social media. Therefore, it would be legalistic to make a rule like that. However, at the same time, I think we need to be aware of trends in our culture and a lot of research has now been done. A lot, a lot of research has now been done linking, directly linking, increased use of social media and exposure to social media directly to increase, uh, increased uh, uh, depression, anxiety, feelings of loneliness, and a whole host of other things. The very thing that was invented out of, I think, really good motives to connect people and sometimes does, those people who know how to use it healthily, and there are people who know how to use it healthily, yes, but the very thing that was made to connect people is actually the very thing now which is actually driving many people apart to feel more depressed and lonely than they ever have. But what was most interesting to me, I read a, uh, an article from the, the Journal of, of Clinical Psychology this last uh, week, which is very fascinating to me, and they had done a bunch of research uh, showing this direct link, link that more social media usage equals more depression, loneliness, anxiety, and those sorts of things. But what's most interesting to me about the article is that they've really been starting to look into now the mechanisms. Why? Why does, for many people, and again, I know there are people who can use it healthily, and by itself, social media is just a neutral tool. It can be used for bad or good. But why is it that for so many people, it's causing these, these things, the opposite of what it's supposed to do? What's the mechanism? And interestingly enough, in this article, what they found was the mechanism has been talked about in the Bible for 3,500 years, the mechanism that drives the increased depression, loneliness, and anxiety that people have from using too much social media is exactly to do with covetousness. See, instead of making people more connected, you know what most people who are on social media a lot happens to them? They end up comparing themselves to each other, not connecting with each other. And it's not that people are trying to be bad. Let me just share an example. And this is what the studies are showing. So I'm just gonna share an example. And nobody is bad in here. So I'm gonna share an example that probably 300 of you did this week. Don't feel bad about that. I'm not saying it's bad, and some of you have done it in healthy ways, so it's great, okay? We're not going legalism and bashing people and all that sort of stuff. I'm just telling you what the research is showing. So here's what the research shows. So for example, uh, someone, person A, makes a wonderful supper for their family, you know? And so they make this beautiful supper, and they put it together beautifully, and it's like, this is awesome. And so what do we do nowadays? And this is all unique to the last, like, 15 years of human history is you snap a picture of it, is there anything bad with that? No. And you post it to social media, is there anything bad with that? No. I, most people, when they do that, they're just pumped. I just made this cool meal, I wanna share it with everybody else. Nobody's being sinful in this at all. The interesting thing that the research is showing though is that most people who are exposed to those pictures on social media don't actually feel, they don't celebrate with you. 
You put it there out of a good motive. You put it out there to say, look at this great meal. This is awesome. But most of the people who view it on social media don't automatically, their brains don't go to, I'm so happy for you. You're so awesome. You know what their brains go to? I feel so terrible. I'm not a good mom. I'm not a good dad. I never make good meals like that. And of course, we never take pictures of what happened just 15 minutes before we ate the meal, which was you completely losing your marbles and saying things you'd be ashamed about for the next month and a half. <laughs> you don't post that picture. So the only pictures we ever see of each other is when everything's good. So it's all we ever see is everybody's perfect families and everybody's perfect meals. And then for those, you know, where you have moms who work all day and both people are working, they come home, they feel exhausted. Instead of making them feel more connected, what it actually makes them feel is increasingly more and more inadequate. This is what the science is showing us. Not that this is what happens to every single person, but this is what is happening to many, many, many people in our culture. And instead of creating connection, it's creating comparison. And comparison is what drives covetousness, which has been in here for 3,500 years. That it, it's a killer. Covetousness and comparing are killers. So what do we do about that, right? This more, 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 more. And again, not consciously, people not trying to be bad. And by the way, please, I'm not telling anyone here to... Let's not go out here and judge now. Someone goes and posts a nice supper this week and be like, ha, ah, trying to make me covet, were you? <laughs> I think the onus is not on telling people to stop posting pictures. I think the onus is on the many of us who are struggling with stress and stuff to stop looking at them. If you don't have a lot of joy in your life and you're on social media a lot, maybe it's time to cut back. Maybe it's time to disconnect and maybe it's time for us to reflect a little bit on our lives and ask the question, unless you're just full of joy and full of the spirit, and I know there's people who use social media and they're super healthy in it. That's awesome. Super awesome. Use it as a tool for good. But I know a lot of people who are just depressed and they use it all the time. Maybe the time to it's time to reflect and say, why do I need to know every single thing these hundred other people that I'm connected to online are doing and saying and eating? Why do I need to know that they're decorating their house so amazing and I feel like a loser because my house is never decorated nice? Why expose yourself to that? Celebrate with them in person. You know when it's easier not to compare? When you're with them in person and you can actually celebrate together and say, you're amazing at this. Can you come and do it at my house? <laughs> what an amazing supper you made that I now get to eat, not just look at and covet but you get to enjoy together. So I have a couple of things. This isn't about guilt. This isn't about going out and judging, okay? And feel free to bash me on social media the rest of this week. <laughs> I won't see it anyway. <laughs> That's why I'm so happy. <laughs> I just don't care what you write there. Two things to think about. It's not about legalism. It's not about rules. It's not about you have to. But here's something I would challenge everyone to at least think about. What if we put boundaries around our social media use and said, you know what? I don't actually need to be connected to everyone all the time. I actually don't need to be connected to everyone all the time. It drives comparing in many cases. What if we put a boundary around and said, maybe there's certain hours in the day or after a certain time, you know, at supper or whenever, where I just actually disconnect now. I actually... For 24 hours a day, I can't keep tabs on everybody's lives at all time. I actually, you know, part of contentment is I'm going to be present in the life God's given me. I'm going to be present in my life, not just everybody else's lives, as wonderful as they may be. Maybe it's a Sabbath. I've talked about Sabbath a number of times in this series. I'm going to keep doing that. Maybe for some of you, because if you don't practice contentment, it won't just happen. Our culture pushes us to compare, 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 compare. What if, we, what if you set a, a, a day a week and just said, you know, one day a week, I'm actually going to disconnect. One day a week, I'm going to actually just practice being in my own life and being thankful for my home and my family and my rituals. I think that's an awesome, healthy thing to do. And if you don't do it, you're not bad either. You're not bad. 
No legalism here. Second thing has to do with giving. One of the greatest ways to combat covetousness is to give. And this is something we should practice regularly too, but it's Christmas time. I think it's great to have a budget and budget generosity and giving both to the church and the kingdom and also to individuals. I think that's a powerful form of rejecting our culture's covetousness. But here's a couple things to think about this Christmas. A couple opportunities to give. First of all, like I said before, in two weeks, we have our Christmas offering, which is our church's opportunity to do what we're preaching to you all the time, which is to take a bunch of money and actually just give it away and not spend it on ourselves. It's not for me. It's not for this building. We get to give it to orphans in Africa. We get to give it for the benefit of hundreds of churches all around the world where they get to benefit from us giving to them. Pray about giving a substantial gift. And if that bothers you that I would put that in the application, you think you're trying to manipulate me into giving more of the Christmas offering, then just give it to a different organization. Feel free to do that too. I'm okay with that. Although I'm more okay with you giving it to the Christmas offering. (laughs) Just so you know. And then the other one is, think of someone in your life, someone you know, who could use it. They're maybe a little bit needy and they could use a generous gift and then give them something substantial this Christmas time. Anonymously is the best way to do it. So I'm going to you just to bow your heads and close your eyes. Let Jesus speak to you about a Sabbath, about your generosity. Jesus, as we sing this song, as we listen to the worship team, we want to strike a blow at the heart of our covetousness. We want to say, enough, enough. I have enough to be content today, starting today. Thank you, Jesus, for what you're going to do.